Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear your word, hearts to receive it, and the will to put it into practice, that we may grow in Christ's likeness. For Jesus' sake. Amen. In 2005, in Turkey, there was a farming incident, you might call it, as various news outlets of the time reported this incident. 1,500 sheep fell off a cliff. 1,500 sheep fell off a cliff. It happened in the early morning. The shepherds had been up all night with their sheep. The shepherds were taking their breakfast break. And apparently, one of the sheep tried to jump this ravine. It wasn't a very big jump, but the sheep missed, fell down a 15-metre cliff. And then one after the other, all 1,500 of the flock followed that one sheep over the cliff. The first 450 passed away. But the other 1,100 didn't because, as you might imagine, the other sheep below them broke their fall. And you hear a story like that, and maybe that's not the only sheep story like that you've heard. And we can't help but think, stupid sheep, what silly creatures. And they are, they blindly followed one another over a cliff. But in the same moment that we think to ourselves, stupid sheep, it's perhaps chastening to consider that the Bible describes God's people and people in general many times over as sheep. Is this a payout? perhaps. But I I want to suggest that the fundamental characteristic of sheep that the Bible has in mind when people are portrayed that way isn't their stupidity. It's not even their tendency to wander off or to wander after other sheep. It's their fundamental helplessness. A helplessness that's encapsulated in their great need for constant direction and their great need for constant care and protection. That seems to be what is at the heart of the biblical image of sheep. And with a bit of of honest self-reflection, I think we can see how that is an apt comparison for us. We like to think that we can live autonomously good, good lives, but what's the reality? The reality is that we stray spiritually from God, and we see the result of that in the broken directionlessness around us in our own lives, in the lives of others, globally, in ways small and big. On our own, we are incapable of finding the right way, incapable of finding God's way. And we like to think we can protect ourselves, and to an extent we can. But as we've reflected on already during this series, and as world events constantly remind us, that capacity is severely limited to protect ourselves. In the face of of a sin-cursed world, the consequences, if you will, of our spiritual wandering, we're confronted time and again with our vulnerability. And we're utterly helpless to do anything about it, in the here and now and in an ultimate sense. In the same way that we're utterly helpless to do anything about our spiritual waywardness, to correct that in any way. And so we need someone who can help us in our helplessness who can give us that direction and that care and protection. We need someone like a shepherd. But consider again the cliff-diving sheep. Well might we shake our heads at their silliness and their helplessness. But it's equally right to wonder about the shepherds, isn't it? Were the sheep being looked after properly? Or were they being looked after by bad shepherds? 
And without knowing the details beyond what was reported, without wanting to smear the name of the shepherds who were a part of that incident, it's telling that this, this tragedy happened when they were taking a break, when they were having their breakfast, when they weren't actively shepherding. And at the very least, that reminds us that sheep really need a shepherd. But it also signals to us that sheep don't just need a shepherd, sheep need a particular sort of shepherd. Sheep need the right shepherd. Sheep need a good shepherd. That is exactly the claim that Jesus famously makes here in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. And when he makes this claim, it's not a claim that he's making out of nowhere, he just plucked the image from the sky. Jesus' listeners were well acquainted with the practice of shepherding. They understood what he was talking about. They knew the relationship that a shepherd had with his sheep. But more than that, over five, in over 500 places, especially in the Old Testament, the Bible depicts God's people as sheep. And at the same time, it depicts God as their great shepherd. And so think, for instance, of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And so on the one hand, any claim in this context, any claim to be the shepherd of the sheep is a claim to be God. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, it's a slightly less grand claim to exercise leadership in God's name. And so Israel's leaders are also routinely depicted in sheep and shepherding terms, appointed by God to have oversight and, and responsibility for his flock. And that's why in other parts of the Old Testament, like Ezekiel 34, Israel's ungodly kings and their ungodly priests are harshly rebuked for their poor leadership, for their poor shepherding of the flock. And so in making this statement, in making this claim, Jesus draws on all that meaning, all that understanding that he knows his listeners have, and he applies it to himself. And a key question arising from this passage is, how do you tell? How do you tell a good shepherd from a bad shepherd? How do you discern the shepherd that is truly from God from the shepherd that truly isn't? And broadly speaking, Jesus, in this passage, he outlines three ways you can do that. Three ways you can tell the good shepherd, or as it's titled here, the ideal shepherd from the bad shepherd. Three aspects three characteristics of the good shepherd. The first characteristic, the ideal shepherd is the shepherd who knows his sheep. Now the setting for this is exactly the same as last week's, as chapter 9. And so what Jesus says here in chapter 10 needs to be understood in light of those events. It's literally a continuation of the conversation that began in verse 41, where Jesus replies, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Jesus' audience consists of Pharisees, those apparent shepherds of the sheep who have just demonstrated their very questionable leadership by having the blind man so callously thrown out of the, the synagogue. And Jesus goes on in verse 1 of chapter 10. I assure you, Anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the door but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. Now that's an obvious enough statement to make. If there's a designated entrance to somewhere and you bypass that entrance to try and find another way in, the likelihood is that you, don't, you have you know, less than honourable reasons for doing that. 
if you've had to find another way inside, then you're probably not supposed to be inside. You are in all likelihood a thief and a robber. And even if you've locked yourself out of your house, as I'm sure many of us have at some point or another, and you're trying kind of to break into your house, I don't know about you, but I always hope that someone who doesn't know me doesn't see me doing that, because I know what they'll be thinking. Who's that dodgy guy? He's trying to break in. He's probably a thief. He's probably a robber. Now, this is the sort of sheep pen that Jesus is referring to. And as you can see, relatively low walls, no roof. It's hardly an impenetrable fortress. And so you can just imagine people climbing over the wall, dropping down, nabbing a sheep or two from the back, hauling them back over the walls and taking off with them. That's their only way to get hold of the sheep. The person who's not a thief, however, they don't have to enter this way, do they? He or she enters the way that people are supposed to, through the door. And that's what we see the shepherd of the sheep doing here in verses 2, 3, and 4. And a key theme of this opening little section is, is recognition. You see that throughout. The shepherd is recognized by the doorkeeper who allows him access. Then the sheep hear his voice, the voice of their shepherd. They recognize it and respond to it. And the shepherd is able to recognize the sheep that belong to him and call them individually and personally. It was common for multiple herds to be housed in the one sheep pen like this. And so the shepherd really needed to be well acquainted with his sheep so that when he went in there, he could actually call them out. And then Jesus goes on to say, once he calls them, the shepherd leads them out. And then he goes on ahead of the sheep, confident that his sheep will follow. And they do. Why do they follow? Verse 4. Because they recognize his voice. And if that sounds implausible to you, especially in light of the opening anecdote of the sheep going over the, the cliff, the English theologian Tom Wright, he tells of being in Palestine and seeing a shepherd in that area do exactly this, going to a crowded sheepfold and name, naming his sheep, calling them out one by one and watching as those sheep came to the shepherd. And then the shepherd walked out to the grassy hills and the sheep just followed him. He walked on ahead. He wasn't behind them, driving them on with a sheepdog like they do in the UK, like we do here in Australia, simply walking ahead and calling them on. And they followed. That is the relationship sheep and shepherds have in that part of the world. That is the relationship Jesus is drawing on as he makes this little metaphor. And this scenario that Jesus depicts, this relationship, it's in stark contrast, isn't it, to what happens if a stranger tries to do the same thing. What do we read there? Not only won't the sheep follow him, they will do the opposite. They will run away from him. Why? Verse 5, because they don't recognize the voice of strangers. Recognition. And in light of the stubborn and callous treatment of the man born blind. It's not too difficult to see what Jesus is saying here. This illustration, it calls out the poor, illegitimate leadership of the Jewish religious authorities, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests. And he contrasts it with the exemplary, legitimate leadership provided by one truly from God. The subtext being, they are not ones truly from God. They are not true shepherds. 
And even though Jesus doesn't explicitly identify himself at this point with the shepherd of his little parable, it's clear that that is the comparison he's making. Them and him. And the point is that the true shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep know him. And the sheep recognize and respond to him. Jesus knows who are his and they recognize and respond to him. And we've seen that already, haven't we, as we've gone through John's Gospel. The disciples, the royal official whose son was miraculously healed, and just last week, the blind man. They have recognized, as it were, the voice of the Christ, their true shepherd, and they have followed him. Not so with the established leaders of Israel, tragically. And it's little wonder we're told in verse 6, Jesus gave them this illustration, but they did not understand what he was telling them. And so Jesus returns to the metaphor, in part to clarify it, but also to extend it a bit. And here he shows the second characteristic of what makes the ideal shepherd. He's a shepherd who provides for his sheep. A shepherd who provides for his sheep. Jesus says in verse 7, I assure you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, for a moment as readers, it seems like Jesus is mixing his metaphors a bit here. Hang on, Jesus, are you the shepherd or are you the door? Some clarification. But what Jesus is likely drawing on is the practice that shepherds had of lying in the doorway of the sheep pen. Remember the basic design of this sheep pen. Very rarely did they have actual doors. And so the practice was for shepherds to lie across the entranceway and in effect to become the door to the sheep themselves. They were the ones that dictated access in and out. And that's Jesus' point, that the door is the sole point of access. That means it's the sole means that the sheep have of enjoying the safety of the pen and the enjoyment of the pasture. And in his role as door of the sheep, the shepherd intends to provide the sheep with both those things, safety and abundant life. And again, this is in contrast to the thief, who in verse 10 we read, comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. The thief's interest isn't in the well-being of the sheep, because it's not. It's in his own gratification. And indeed, Jesus goes so far, just before that in verse 8, to say quite controversially, quite, quite confrontationally, that all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. All who came before me. Who is he talking about? Well, he's likely talking about Israel's leadership, past and present. That is a jab right to the heart of the Pharisees who are listening to him. He uses the present tense. They are thieves and robbers they promised so much throughout Israel's history and even at this time and yet time and again they proved to be little more than, than swindlers of the people in it for their own gratification by contrast Jesus provides legitimate access to the proper enjoyment of life now and the safety of eternal life in him alone is salvation in him alone is true fulfilment And the final movement of this extended shepherding metaphor explains 
how that salvation is secured, how that abundant life is made possible, what makes the shepherd truly good, Jesus declares famously in verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the third characteristic of the ideal shepherd. It's the shepherd who dies for his sheep. And this definition that Jesus provides of what it means to be a good shepherd, it's the very opposite, isn't it? Of what it means to be a thief and a robber. The thief and the robber comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. The thief and the robber comes only to decimate life. Decimate the lives of others. For the good shepherd, it means the decimation of his life for others. His life for the sheep. And so for Jesus, violent death, it isn't just a, it isn't just a dangerous possibility. It's his, um, it's his vocation. It's, it's his calling. The sheep are facing danger. The good shepherd goes to meet it and if necessary, takes upon himself that fate, the fate that would otherwise befall his sheep. And as we draw nearer to Easter, and as it does this time of year, the cross seems to come into even more sharp focus for us. We're reminded that in Jesus' case, meeting that danger was necessary. And he did just that. And it's here where Jesus' metaphor, in effect, reaches its limit, doesn't it? With the necessity of Jesus' death and his willingness to die it. But also his capacity to die it. See, noble as a shepherd may be, laying down his life for his sheep. If the threat wins, be it bear, wolf, lion, robber, if the threat wins, then a dead shepherd isn't going to be able to do any more for his sheep. The threat remains and the sheep are now fully exposed to it. But Jesus, he lays down his life, he says, willingly knowing that the laying down is not the end. He knows that. Indeed, the laying down of his life is what will, is what will ultimately overcome the threat. Driven by divine love and compassion, Jesus lays down his life so that he may take it up again. And he's the only one who can do that. Who can take on the danger and darkness of sin and death and not be destroyed by it. Not be overcome by it. Instead, by dying on the cross and rising to new life, he is the one who removes the ultimate danger and darkness of sin. He is the one who destroys death, who overcomes it. It's the promise of Psalm 23, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. What does Psalm 23 famously say not long after that? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The promise of that is fulfilled in the cross of Christ in the one who can lay down his life for the sheep and take it back up again. So three characteristics of the ideal shepherd. The shepherd who knows his sheep. The shepherd who provides for his sheep. And the shepherd who dies for his sheep. So the question left for us is, is he your shepherd? Or perhaps who is your shepherd? Do you even have a shepherd? Why does it matter who's your shepherd or not? Does it, whether you have one or not? As we've seen here, the care and protection that Jesus provides 
uniquely provides. It's personal, it's abundant, it's life-giving, it's contrasted starkly with the self-interest and the callous disregard of the Pharisees. But Jesus' good shepherding is also contrasted with that of any other human leader, any other human shepherd, even the best of them, because a human shepherd can only be of so much help to other humans. In the end, they are themselves ultimately helpless sheep. And so Jesus' declaration that he is the good shepherd reminds us to be wary of placing too much faith, too much hope in our human leaders. A human shepherd of God's flock, godly as they may be, cannot remove your sin. They cannot overcome the judgment of your sin, death, eternal separation from God. They will never be able to deliver like Jesus can, like Jesus has. And yet, God, in his wisdom and his mercy, he still calls many of us to be shepherds of his sheep today under the great shepherd Jesus. And how do we do that if we're called to leadership of God's flock in some capacity? What's the faithful way to do that? By pointing people to Jesus constantly and by doing our best to lead with Jesus' sort of compassion. We can't save you, but we can fix your eyes on the one who can, on the good shepherd who has. And like all of John's gospel, like all of the Bible, this passage compels us to consider where each of us stand with God. In the passage that James read for us, verses 19 to 21, the very end of that bit, they record yet more divisive responses to Jesus' teaching within the Jewish leadership, not unlike what happened in chapter 9. Some hear it and they write it off as the ramblings of a madman at best or a demon-possessed person at worst. But others hear it and they hear something different, don't they? What is it? They hear maybe, just maybe, the voice of God. And this plays out in the second half of the chapter that Kelly read, which we haven't looked at in detail. At the Feast of Dedication, a couple of months later, this same topic is brought up again. These same people come and engage Jesus over it. And as he continues to teach and, and explain a bit more, they ultimately reject it. But then Jesus crosses the Jordan, and the people there... They see his signs, they hear his teaching, they connect the dots, and we're told they believe in him. What about you? Maybe you don't see yourself as all that helpless. And that is one of those things that we find hard to admit, isn't it? Helplessness. Maybe Jesus isn't the center of your life, but that's just fine because you're you're absolutely certain of your direction in life and the absolute rightness of it. If that's you, consider why Jesus uses and applies to us and himself the sheep-shepherd metaphor in the first place. Certainly, you know, there's, at no point is it flattering to us, the sheep. At best, we're helpless. At worst, we're feckless, faithless, feeble-minded. And for the one who loves the world so much, He's willing to lay down his life for us. That seems an unnecessarily harsh image to apply if it weren't for the fact there was some great truth to it that we needed to hear. And for those of us perhaps with more tender consciences, I think we can hear Jesus' teaching here and, and can we can wonder, you know, am I actually in Jesus' flock? 
Perhaps you are all too aware of your wandering, all too aware of your spiritual helplessness. As one hymn puts it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I feel it. If that's you, consider verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, I know my own sheep and they know me as the Father knows me and I know the Father. The sheep are Jesus' own and they, and they know one another with a unity that Jesus likens to that between the eternal Son and the eternal Father. A unity that was broken only once in all of time at the cross. And they're never to be separated again. Jesus says, if you are one of my sheep, we're that tight. But maybe that's the point that nags at you. Do I know Jesus like that? Have I recognized his voice? Well, let me assure you, if you, if you have recognized your sin and your utter helplessness and you have placed your faith in Jesus, who alone makes you right with God, then yes, you have heard the voice of your shepherd loud and clear. And if having done that, your conscience is pricked by the ongoing reality of your sin, let me suggest that that's a good thing. It's an indicator that in the deep recesses of your heart, the parts that you kind of reserve only for yourself to know about, the Holy Spirit is at work. That in your helplessness, you continue to recognize Jesus' voice. And if when you read the Bible, if when you read God's word, you are at once joyously uplifted at the reality of God's love and unmerited grace towards you. And at the same time, you are humbled and challenged by the reality of how far short you daily fall of your sinless salvation and the promise of it. Let me assure you, that is a good thing. That too is an indicator that you are one of Jesus' flock, recognizing his good voice, that you are reminded of your helplessness, but not not of your hopelessness. And so even with your trust in Jesus, even with my trust in Jesus, we will stumble and stray along the way. But our identity is secure. And so is our future. With your life, your soul, your all in the care of the good shepherd, you're not going to fall off any spiritual cliffs or follow anyone else off one. Why? Because Jesus knows his sheep. And his sheep know him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are our great shepherd. That you have laid down your life for us, only to take it up again. For the promise of eternal life that that means for us. We pray that you may help us see the ways in which you are looking after us even now. Pray you may keep us attuned to your voice as we pray, as we read your word, and as we share our lives with one another. I pray for anyone in this room who is yet to place their faith in you. May you speak clearly to them. May they hear your voice and have life and have it in abundance. Amen.